0: So I was born in uh, 1993, which by all accounts was a pretty great year. Um, I was only alive for the last eight weeks of it, so I don't remember much of 993. No, no, um, but I hear some good things happened. I hear that um, the greatest song of that year, the top-selling song, was uh, Meat Loafs. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Um, if you know what that is, please tell me, because I've never learned what, what he wouldn't do. Um, also in 1993, we had Jurassic Park terrorising cinema goers across the world. We had uh, Bill Clinton elected as the 42nd President of the United States. Uh, Dyson brought out the first bagless cyclonic vacuum cleaner and revolutionized the Hoover game forevermore. And uh, we also had the Chern Institute introduce the World Wide Web uh, for free to everyone. So there he is, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, introduced the Web for everyone for free. What a guy. So, by all accounts, pretty great year. I was born in it. All that stuff happened. And um, growing up... In in the world, having been born in 1993 means I've grown up the last 25, 26 years uh, in a time of rapid change and development. Uh, It's been a spread of brands, ideas, and people uh, all across the world. And by the time I started secondary school at this Hogwarts-esque place behind me uh, in Reading, uh, I even had my very own phone that had a black and white screen and that I could download little polyphonic ringtones for 79p a pop. And it was just the best thing out um, within a few years, you got things like iPhones and smartphones. And uh, the kids at my school who maybe had gone to a prep school before coming to my grammar school, state school, uh, t- started getting nice phones, shiny phones, sleeker phones. Uh, I was stuck with my little Sage and, and my polyphonic ringtones. But the posture-richer kids started getting sleeker, better, sort of Samsung folding phones, if you remember those. And uh, these phones are pretty great. Uh, they could show you videos, uh, they could download apps, they could do their own thing. And uh, it was on one of these phones that uh, I was shown my first porn film at uh, age 12 years old by a bunch of boys in my class. Um, it was in this school that I learned what it meant to be a man with the smell of lynx Africa uh, everywhere, and testosterone running wild. I was taught how to honor a woman or not honor a woman. I was taught how to objectify or not objectify people. I was taught how I should compete, how I should live in an all-boys grammar school environment, which um, if you've never been to one, don't ask me about it. If you have been to one, you'll know what it's like. Not always the best place uh, to learn some of that stuff, to be exposed to that stuff. And amidst this, um, I was sort of growing up watching other more confident boys plucking up the courage to ask girls out, all the while sharing porn films with each other with infrared and then Bluetooth technology. Uh, as I got older, I saw these guys getting more confident, starting dating girls. I continually failed with flirtations that I think if you ask the girls now, they wouldn't, they wouldn't think I was flirting. I remember this one girl that I used to talk to her about, like, football results. And like, I thought that was my way in and she she like never would reply to the messages but i thought maybe this will be where it comes but wasn't much of a casanova um, but as i got older and as i saw these 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 people having these relationships and i started seeing messier breakups and i saw relationship breakdowns i saw drunken mistakes at house parties and the like um, i saw the word gay go from being a playground insult age 12 to a painful identity struggle for many of my friends age 16 17 Uh, I had my first kiss aged 18 uh, in a dingy and dilapidated nightclub underground in Bristol. Uh, When I started secondary school, I only knew of there being two genders. And by the time I finished, I was told there could be 37. The world changed in my seven years at secondary school. My whole understanding of love and sex and relationships changed in those seven years. And I'm sure for all of us in the room, uh, some of you might be a few years ahead of me. Some of you might be kind of similar age to me. Some of you might be a few years after me. Um, You'll have seen culture shift dramatically in the last sort of 25, 30 years. Um, And some of this will really resonate. Some of it may feel really alien to you. Uh, But our world has got an entirely different uh, uh, narrative on sex and and love and lust in the last sort of 20 odd years or so. And uh, today we're kicking off our series on love, sex, relationships, friendships. And uh, we're going to consider our own stories. We're going to consider the story of culture and uh, consider the God story behind all of this stuff. We're going to delve into a book called Song of Songs uh, and hear what the Bible has to say about all of this. So let's be open and ready for God to speak to us, to stir something in all of us today. Let's pray. God, I thank you that uh, you've got something to say to us about love, about sex, about relationships, about friendship, about all the things uh, that we sometimes struggle with and find it hard to process and talk about and wrestle with. And God, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to our identities, you would challenge us in how we live and how we do life. Amen. Here is my dad on the screen behind us. Uh, he's sometime management consultant. Sometime Heisenberg from Breaking Bad look-alike. And an oftentimes well-intentioned, less effective relationship advisor. So uh, the first time my uh, Sarah, my girlfriend and now wife, uh, came to visit my family for the first time, uh, me and Walter White, sorry, me and my dad uh, thought we'd enjoy a lovely round of golf, a bit of father-son bonding time on the golf course, at a course near us called Burfield Golf Course, which is one of those places where you pay a fiver and you turn up in your trackies and you play, and there's some empty foster's cans in the bunkers. It is not not a nice golf course. So we fitted right in with our lack of golfing ability. Uh, But I want you to picture this gorgeous sunny day, this, this beautiful male moment of bonding between father and son. The conversation was flowing, the golf ability less so. And then on the fourth hole, the relationship guru decided to reflect upon my new girlfriend's visit to the beautiful lands of Berkshire. So Adam, it was um, it was great to meet Sarah last few days. Really like getting to know her. Uh, yeah, cool. Thanks, Dad. It's been thanks for like being welcoming. You know, it's good. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, Adam. Like, um, how have you guys found like um, like boundaries and um, physical stuff? Uh, 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 um, uh. It's just um, when I was dating your mum, it was just really hard. Like, <laughs> I I just couldn't keep my hands off her. And I, oh, I spent the next 14 holes hitting the ball as far away from him as I could, spearing it off to the left, spearing it off to the right, wherever he was, I was at the opposite end of the golf course. It was so awkward for those next 14 holes. And I, you know what? It can be really awkward to talk about this stuff, can't it? And it can be really awkward to be honest about it, to be truthful about it. You never want to hear your parents talk about it in particular. Uh, but for some of us, it's not just awkward. It's actually really quite painful. And I think we need to name it and acknowledge that as we start this series because uh, some of us may recall painful relationship breakdowns in our own life and in those around us. We may be survivors of abuse, of trauma, and we may know people that are. And we hear and read stories of horrific sexual abuse and relational breakdown across our world, from hashtag MeToo revolution to child sexual exploitation scandals in Rotherham and Oxford and other places. We hear about the horrors of female genital mutilation, and often the way that sex and relationships are spoken off in our media focuses on these kind of horror stories. Or... I think it kind of focuses on this other side to sex and relationships, which tends to be a bit more sleazy and a bit more scandalous. Uh, I think that love and lust are two of the best salespeople uh, in the world around us. Uh, we're enticed into spending six whole weeks of our summer uh, binge-watching enviable, attractive humans, couple and decouple repeatedly on a gorgeous European island. Love Island, that is. There we go. Look at them. Tempting to buy the latest perfumes, watches, cars and more, all through the how love is presented to us, all through how love is presented to us. And you know, we could go into the reasons behind all of this today. In the next few weeks of this series, uh, we're going to touch upon it. We're going to look at things like holiness, intimacy, conflict, and healing in our relationships the next few weeks. Uh, But for today, what I want us to think about is what is the better story to all of this stuff? What is the better story than what we see in the world around us and what we experience in our culture, than what we've grown up with? Surely there is more to our flourishing as human beings than what Dolce & Gabbana, ITV2, and Victoria and all her secrets tell us. We've got to know a better story, and we've got to tell a better story to the world around us. Whatever our experience of love, lust, and more has been, God has something to say about all of it, both to us and to the culture we live in. He wants us to celebrate love and sex, friendship and marriage, singleness and relationships, and use all of them to show the power of his love for us. And this is where the better story comes in, the God story. You see, right at the heart of the Bible uh, is one of the most emotive, powerful, erotic, confusing, fascinating, steamy, and rich love poems you'll ever read. It's the song of songs, sometimes called Song of Solomons. It's a bunch of spiraling, twisting, nonlinear poetic dance. It looks a little bit like this graph behind us, one before, please, where it jubs around a little place. It doesn't really make sense to read it as a, as, as a narrative. And Song of Songs sometimes is called Song of Solomon. This isn't because it was written by King Solomon. He was an Old Testament king of Israel who had over 700 wives, so we don't really want to learn about relationships from him. Um, But it's a book in the style of Solomon. It's a book uh, kind of learning from this guy who was renowned for his wisdom literature, for the romantic uh, poems that he used to write. Song of Songs is an eight-chapter-long kind of slightly jumbled flow of beautiful imagery describing the romancing and then marriage of two young lovers. And uh, you may have heard it uh, referred to with Sniggers uh, as that book in the Bible which talks about breasts and hands being thrust through latch openings and other very strange metaphors. Um, some, some of you look completely shocked by that. Uh, if you aren't familiar with it as a book, uh, no doubt such erotic and sometimes bizarre language can surprise us. Uh, so I encourage you to give it a read at some point uh, in this series. Uh, but remember the, kind of that, some of those language and imagery uh, kind of Hebrew metaphors. So It's not as literal as it may seem when you read it. Uh, The Song of Songs itself is a phrase, it's kind of a Hebrew turn of phrase, a bit like uh, King of Kings or Lord of Lords uh, that we we hear about in the Bible, basically saying this is the song of all songs, it's the greatest song out, it's the best thing going. It's eight chapters of romantic language and uh, metaphors that is undoubtedly confusing to us uh, as a modern reader, but a book that is still fascinatingly important to us. It's similar to many other ancient Egyptian, Babylonian and Middle Eastern love poems of its contemporary era, yet it has a few key turns of phrase and imagery and uh, kind of excerpts in it, in the passage, uh, which really reflect to us as Christians, to us as people wanting to wrestle more of Christianity, some really key ideas and concepts. Uh, first of all, it talks a lot about uh, the image of the garden, and it talks about lovers in the garden. Uh, the Bible starts uh, in a garden, in a perfect garden, the Garden of Eden in Genesis, uh, with two married lovers uh, frolicking happily with all the animals in the, in the garden. Before they make mistake, they turn away from God and walk away from him in their own sin. And uh, the Bible has a lot of instances of gardens being talked about. This the time of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the night that he was betrayed. And uh, gardens often speak to us in the Bible of kind of being a place of hope. So I kind of think when we when we read through the Song of Songs, we see these two lovers. Uh, it gives us hope for what our relationships could be. It gives us hope for what our friendships, our marriages, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, could all look like. It points us to something greater and something higher in our world. And this leads us on to the uh, the ending of Song of Songs. Uh, And chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, which is kind of our key passage today, if you like. So I'm going to read it out for us, and then we're sort of going to go through it together a bit. So, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Let's note a few things here. Uh, first, this is a powerful picture of what love is, of what true love is. It's a picture of unrelenting passion, but also of committed faithfulness. And starting with the uh, first verse here, uh, the language of seal uh, pops up a few times in the Bible. And uh, sorry, no, ne- ne- next seal. And oh, no, then no, come on, ne- next seal again, please. No, 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 no. Come on, next one. There we go. Positive single language is seal. And when we're talking about seal here, we're talking about a kind of a mark of permanence, a mark of ownership. And when you get a seal on a letter like this, it speaks of something that's quite important. It tells you who it belongs to. You might get an invitation for dinner with the queen. I've not had it yet. I'm waiting for it. Uh, But that's what she'd have a seal. She'd have a royal seal on the end of it. Uh, So when we hear the two lovers here speaking of a seal, it's a mark of their permanence and a mark of their commitment to one another. It's kind of a sign of their identity. You place like a seal upon each other. They now know who they both belong to. They now know who they're both connected to. Um, I kind of think of this sort of permanence of this seal. I've got a tattoo on my arm. So I kind of think it's almost like the seal on her arm is like a tattoo or his arm is like a tattoo. It's like a permanent sign of who they belong to, of who they love, who they're they're with. And a a seal also uh, represents, I think, the bride's affection in living out the first commandment. Seal on your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And a seal on the arm is about reaching out speaks of loving your neighbor, the second commandment, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So you've got this seal upon your heart, love the Lord your God of all your heart, and then a seal upon your arm, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's a good instruction and a good calling for this newly married couple of Song of Songs. And in the Bible, we also read uh, seals in another way. Seals are often linked uh, to the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the power and presence of God at work within us as followers of God. Uh, Ephesians 1 speaks of uh, how when we believed, we were marked in him with a seal, The promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption. Next slide, please. And then we also read in two Corinthians of uh, God setting his seal of ownership upon us and putting his spirit in us as a deposit. So when you think of sealing, when you think of this imagery in Song of Songs, it also is speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's both, yes, a commitment between the two lovers but it is also a calling on their marriage and a sign of what their marriage stands for. Devotion to God, devotion to the world around them, and devotion to one another. Hashtag marriage goals. We've spoken about how love is like a seal. We've looked into this a bit, but there's also some really visceral language in the rest of our passage that we're going to read through. So we see love described uh, as being like death. It is persistent, it is total, and it is irreversible. The bond of love needs to be nourished and regarded as permanent. Love is like a raging fire. It cannot be extinguished. Love can give life, as fire does, but it can also destroy, as fire does. We've got to take care how, where, and with who the spark of love is ignited. And remember our kind of reflections earlier where we've seen this misuse in our culture, where we see abuse and trauma and all that sort of stuff happening. Love cannot be bought or sold. It's not a piece of merchandise. Love must be appreciated for its great value and not be taken for granted. True love has no end. It's permanent and relentless and powerful. And as humans, we we need to remember, as we read this passage, as we reflect upon the story of the Song of Songs and the two lovers in it. uh, We will never perfectly love anything or anyone, as hard as we try, because none of us are perfect. And the sooner we get over that, I think for some of us, the better. We need to be okay with that. We're not going to perfectly nail it, and that's all right. None of us are. I think love shows us that as humans, we have unending desires. We're never fully satisfied with something. We always want a bit more of something here and there. We want to be known. We want to fully know each other. We want to know people. We want to be desired and act on our desires ourselves. But we won't ever be fully loved by humans because none of us are perfect. And the images of love in this passage are quite intense at times. And we need to remember that although as humans uh, we only experience this in part and in imperfection, this love of Song of Songs we read about here is made complete and perfect in God. As we read these descriptions, as we think about lovers a fire, lovers um, being not able to be quenched by rivers, not being able to bought of all the money in the world. Think of that as how powerful and convincing the passion of God's love is for us and how it doesn't waver or flicker or falter. Uh, we are talking about rom-coms uh, just earlier, and uh, one of the worst rom-coms of all time uh, is The Notebook, um, Fight Me. Um, and I think w- w- we, when we read this passage and when we see about these two lovers, we often kind of get a little bit awkward or a bit uncomfortable. Um, and we kind of think, oh, it's quite romantic. Like, it's just between the two couples, it's two lovers. It's not for, for us as well. Like, God doesn't like, love me like romantically. That's a bit, it's a bit weird. But I kind of think we need to realize that that is actually at times how Jesus relates to us and how he shows love for us. Um, I think we can find it weird because sometimes we um, kind of over-intellectualize our faith. And I don't think that's a bad thing to intellectualize faith at all. But I think we can kind of go too much of it and make it too much of a head thing and kind of a, a big questions thing um, that, we, that we sort of forget or overlook the kind of the fierceness of God's love for us and the passionate nature of it and the lengths he's willing to go for us, uh, to pursue us. Um, I would suggest to you that our sexual desires actually uh, teach us kind of about the intense passion of God's love because I would say that your desires will never be fully fulfilled in a human, but your desires will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The incompleteness of our love, the incompleteness of our sexual experience point us to Jesus Christ in that he is the only true and full satisfaction for the longing within each of us. And we've read in this passage earlier about um, these, these two lovers in their marriage, and we see a marriage as an icon of God's faithfulness, a lifelong commitment that is sealed between two people who hold steady to one another faithfully and love each other passionately. Uh, but I want you to pause and just for five seconds look around the room. Just look at the, around the room. Everyone do it. Good. Good. You look at all those people. Think for five seconds now about the people you see outside of Sunday, outside of the two hours you spend here, what they're like. Um, Are they all married, all those people in this room, all those people out there? Are they all married? No, no, thank you. They're not all married, are they? So does this mean that these people any less represent the passionate, faithful, unending, unyielding love of God to the world around them? Of course not. The call to represent this love is to all of us. So for me to stand here and tell you the solution to this is just get married. That's not going to solve it. That's not the full picture. So we need to remember that as we read this passage, Song of Songs is not just a good instruction on how to be a good little married couple. It is a reminder of the significant role we all have in demonstrating the love of God to the world around us. Just as marriage is about passion and faithfulness, is the same for anyone who is single, dating, engaged, divorced, widowed, uninterested, it's complicated. Your singleness is a vocation and a calling that bears witness to the God-ordained link between passion and faithfulness. If you're single, your challenge is not to see that as your identity, but to recognize the opportunity it has to bear witness to God, just as a married person does. It's the same whatever relationship status you're in. If you're engaged, widowed, dating, whatever it is, how are you bearing witness to this God relationship between passion and faithfulness? Uh, it's the same, regardless of relationship status, it's the same with all humans we interact with. How are we showing people this love? Uh, if I love my wife of all the passion in the world, but no faithfulness, that marriage is going to go up in flames. That's going to be destructive. That's going to be dangerous. If I love my wife of all the faithfulness in the world, but no passion, it's going to be pretty boring. And it's also going to be destructive in another way. Do you see this? Do you see this link between the two of them? So we need to think this through in how we are doing our relationships and how we are doing our friendships. It's a combination of the two of these that is so powerful, this passion and this faithfulness. And this is a love that we want to speak of to the world around us. A love that is faithful, that is unending, not daunted or intimidated by what a person has done or said or fought. And a love that is passionate and unrelenting in its pursuit of us and its desire to know us and help us find fulfillment. This perfect love is only fully found in God. And this is a better story that we have to tell. Whoever it is you spend time with, whoever it is that you influence Uh, You can tell them a better story because of the God story that we're talking about today. Sorry. Your story is better because of God's story. Your friend's story is better because of God's story. I can stand before you and tell you my story. I can tell you about being shown a porn film way too young. I can tell you about uh, having a kiss with way too much tongue with some girl I can't remember the name of in a dingy nightclub in Bristol because of who God is. Not because of who I am, not because I'm showing off to you, not because I'm trying to impress you, because you've probably all got better stories than I do. But we need to be people that boast in our weaknesses and our failures and be unashamed of our brokenness, because we want to talk of the restorative passion, restorative power and faithfulness of God, that he may be glorified, and that we can tell his story, regardless of what's happened to us, regardless of what's been done to us, to remember the God's story here, to remember what he is saying about this stuff, and to tell this better story to the world around us. And I think we also need to be um, aware, particularly uh, as the church, particularly as those that would identify as Christians and say we're uh, committed to following Jesus, that um, as the church, we kind of have a bit of a bad rep in this area. And we kind of need to recognize that the world around us, the culture we live in, probably looks at the church as as sometimes a little bit sort of high court judgy, sat on a throne telling people how to live, telling people what to do, what not to do, what to wear, what not to wear. And I think we need to be really aware of that stereotype that we have um, of us and kind of how we interact with us. Uh, interact with people we're talking to. Uh, And I would say to you that there's never been a more relevant time than the the cultural maelstrom we're in now to show people what truly passionate and faithful love looks like in a world which often struggles to combine the two. We need to tell them this better story. We need to speak to them this God story of love, of freedom, of forgiveness, of healing. And as Song of Songs talks about the passionate and faithful love of God, we've got to tell this to to the world, to our friends, our kids, our family, our housemates, our workmates, whoever it is. I've got some friends who I think absolutely nail this in how they walk this out in the world and how they walk this out with their friends. Uh, as a married couple, they've said to a friend of theirs that uh, he is family to them and they are family to him. Uh, whatever he goes through, whatever they go through, they are family together. And I was really struck by this when they told me this because um, they've used the language of uh, their kids will be his kids and his kids will be their kids. And I, I thought, they're not giving up on this person. They're not giving up on this person. Whatever they are, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, they're not giving up. And at times, I think they know this will be painful and tough for them, and you can get rejected, and it can be harmful and hurtful. But they know that they're committed. They're passionate and faithful in their pursuit and their commitment to this person, to this friend. And that, for me, is a brilliant example of what we can all do and how we show love to people. How we can be passionate, unrelenting, committed, and faithful in showing the love of God to people. And that's our identity and calling in all of our relationships and our friendships, to model this out to people. As a church family uh, at G2 City, it's in our DNA and our vision. Uh, Behind us is the vision statement of G2 City, the the place we're in now. And I won't read all of it out, but there's a couple of key things that I want you to just pick out here. Um, Quite early on, it says about uh, transforming culture by living creative expression of church. Uh, We need to transform culture. We need to show culture a better way to do love, relationships, marriage. Uh, We need to build a family where everyone is invited to belong, loved as they are, and empowered to become who God created them to be regardless of who they identify as, what they identify as, what's been done to them, what's been said to them, what's been said over them. We need to be people that are a family, that is welcoming, that is open, that's willing to accept people and not judge people and not go straight for behavior, but go straight for people's heart and how we love people and support people. And this is a call to to us as as the married, as the single, as the dating, the divorced, the confused, that it's complicated, the friend with benefits, the engaged, the hurting and the hoping. We need to live this out and show and tell to the world this better story. This story of a love that is passionate, intense, and unrelenting, and that is committed, unending, and faithful to you, regardless of what's been done to you, regardless of what's been said about you, said to you, regardless of who you identify as, or the hurt or pain that you've gone through, or even the hope and happiness that you feel or that you're chasing after. This love is for you. It is perfectly passionate, and it is forever faithful, because that is who God is. And that is the God story. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your love for us that is like a raging fire. I thank you for the story of Song of Songs in, in, in teaching us, Lord, what it looks like to, to love with passion and to love with faithfulness in a world which often struggles to marry the two. God, Lord, we as a community today know your, your love sealed on our hearts and our arms like a, like, a, like a permanent sign, a permanent sign that we're yours, that you want to have a relationship with us and do great things for us. And God, I pray for us that are hurting, for us that have got a story, for us that have felt uncomfortable for the last 25 minutes as I've been talking about this. And I think that's quite a few of you. Um, And I think God really wants to bring healing and open up some stuff in our hearts in a safe place, in a safe way, where we feel like people have judged us or where we feel like things have been done to us that shouldn't have been done to us. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here. We acknowledge that you want to bring healing. We acknowledge that you've got a better story to tell us and a better story to rewrite in the hearts of us that have been hurt and in the hearts of us that have done the hurting. God, thank you that you're with us and thank you that you are speaking. Amen.